Hello. Hey. You're listening to Survival Guide with Joel and Lorna on Radio Skid Row 88.9. Today we're going to be talking about police and the relationship to gentrification, police brutality, the stigmatisation of young black fellas and young black women in our communities and in Redfern and Waterloo. That chant um, at the start, too many cobbers, not enough justice, um, you know, it's uh, the catch cry at the moment um, for a lot of these marches and that's what we're calling this episode, too many coppers, not enough justice. In reality, I think it's too many coppers and never any justice and I guess that's what, you know, a lot of people are really kind of bringing it back to is that, you know, it's never any justice and it's the perfect perfect title. I wanted to mention um, just what's going on at the moment around... Um, in Sydney and around Sydney, there's an inquest into David Dungay, into the death of David Dungay um, uh, at Long Bay Jail, I think it was in 2015. Um, so there's been, you know, an inquest happening down there. The family's been down there um, having to watch, you know, this person's last moments of his life. They've been asking for, you know, support, moral support, um, visibility, black faces down there because, you know, um, it's intimidating to be in the court systems, um, you know. It's, it's like the whole system is geared to keep traumatising us um, and there's been, a, there's been a rally called for today um, down at the Corrections um, and we'll have more details with that um, for that gathering this afternoon so get down there show your support but I really just wanted to just acknowledge and mention that that is happening today and in the history of police interactions with our people I guess this is what we're going to be talking about and unpacking for you fellas today we're going to really be focusing on the stigmatization of Aboriginal children and how that campaign has been used um, to justify um, the gentrification that's happening at the moment. There's been a huge ongoing campaign of stigmatisation of Aboriginal children in the local area um, and nine times, you know, a lot of the time, nine times out of ten, this is, this is the things that... Um, these are the stereotypes that have come from, you know, this stigmatisation and this campaign that Aboriginal children are monsters and it's pretty much reflected across the rest of the country. And, you know, I do want to... Just put out there that, you know, we're talking about people's lives. We're talking about my life. We're talking about my trauma. We're talking about other people's trauma. So this episode has a bit of a, a bit of a warning. But again, you know, when people are so desensitised and so cut off and so far removed from the humanness that we keep trying to bring it back to, often we have to hit that emotional bone. You know, we have to make people feel something we have to make them actually try and put themselves in th these shoes so that, you know, they're not looking at us with these stereotypical ideas mm. of who we are and what we are. It's actually just opening up a conversation that a lot of people have been avoiding and this whole country has been avoiding for the last 230 years. Mm. And it really is just as simple as that, you know. This is a, this is a penal colony. The country has started out as exactly. a prison. Exactly. Um, and it's just—it's completely unacceptable. The just the, the complete and utter disregard by wider society 
in a, in a in a large sense of the overrepresentation of Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander people in prison. I mean, we make up three percent of the population, and but we make up twenty seven percent of the the prison population in the whole nation. Mm. Um, we have, and then when you look at juvenile detention in the Northern Territory. It was recently released that the statistics show that they're, they're, the representation is 100% Indigenous. Mm. And every child. Every child in those prison Aboriginal. systems is Aboriginal. And, you and know, they're targeting our kids. That's the thing. They target the kids because the kids are targeted. We've, we've heard about this with the, the blacklisting of, of, of youth, of youth um, on the streets by police targeting the potential mm. criminals so that they, they, they pick eight-year-olds, ten-year-olds, some kids as young as eight up for being potential cr- criminals. And, and, I, and then they harass them and they build this relationship between them and the state. And what we're trying to do here is really emphasise to you all that if, you know, if, if gentrification is colonisation, then in both respects the police are the muscle. They are the enforcing arm of this movement and displacement in every single way. Mm -hmm. And we see it in our cities now. We see it in our communities in Redfern and Waterloo. We see it in communities across the country. Mm -hmm. These police are locking up kids, locking up adults, locking up women, locking up mums. They're pushing them away and that's how they're getting... It's, it's again, it's it's just... it's, It's assimilation. It's genocide again. It's genocide. It's genocide and it's ongoing genocide. Um, and I guess, you know, um, I can, I'm, I'm going to testify. We're going to hear um, from a community conversation that we were lucky enough to um, facilitate, uh, facilitate to open that conversation up. Um, you know, we was lucky enough to be given space by 107 after everyone's just literally turned their backs on this subject for a very long time, for as long as I can remember. Like, I've been saying, you know, even um, the other day when we had that conversation, I've just been saying, you know, just in general, there has never been a community forum about police in the community of Redfern and Waterloo, even after, you know, 15 years after the fact um, of of murdering TJ. And I'm just going to say it like that because that's what it is. This person was... (laughs) <laughs> was a fully functioning young adult gone like that because of, because of someone you know racial profiling exactly racial profiling you know we we can we, we're going to try and unpack all of this stuff but one of the main tactics that has worked really well in this community has been monitoring children before they've even thought of committing crimes they are known. We've, we've become known by police before anything even happens. So if anybody knows any of the information, anybody knows the system and, and how people get caught up in the system, is it's, it's, it's toxic as fuck. Once you're in it, it's so hard to get out, right? And that's the whole point. They know this. That's why they're getting our children in the system very, very young, even before crimes are committed. I'm pretty sure there's some kind of post-apocalyptic movie where people are jailed for crimes before they've even done them. I'm sure there's a lot of movies that are pretty much framed as horror, whereas this is our reality, and this has been our reality here in this community for the last 30 years. As a young person growing up here, now raising my child, now, you know, having access to all these different spaces, I'm only just realising that there's actual legislations, there's actual policies that were in place to make it okay for these grown men 
to be harassing children. You've got a quote. Well, yeah. Now we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna, gonna ta- we're gonna go face? through we're gonna go through a few points in history, and I think it's really important to you know to express like our solidarity and, and our concerns and respect for the Hickey family. And we're gonna talk about TJ, and we're gonna have some discussions around some of that because I think that really sets the stakes. But before before we take it back to that point, before we go back 14 years, we're gonna go back another 250 years, mm. and we're gonna have a conversation. I've got I'm gonna I'm gonna read to you a quote from a book which is called The History of Australian Land Management, which was published in 1920 um, by Sir Stephen Roberts. Um, And this is page one. The The initial stage, 1788 to 1809. In 1787, the logic of a few facts and considerations of strict economy determined that Botany Bay should be settled. The fact that they... The fact that there were 100,000 convicts in England and that for these 40,000 were, were awaiting transportation, the fact of the economy came in with the consideration that a convict in the hulks in prison cost £24 um, pounds a year, while he could be transported 10,000 miles for less than £20. Pounds. Hence, as a committee of the House of Commons reported in 1779, it was advisable to establish a, con- a colony of, of convicted felons in any distant part of the globe. But where? America was closed. Africa mm. had meant extermination for the convicts. That left only the South, to which attention had been directed a short time before by the French writer um, de Brozes. Um, he emphasised that the islands directly north of Australia so that when news came of Cook's discoveries of the East Coast, the topic was by no means underdeveloped. Cook merely buttressed and gave hope to a trend which had been emerging, the upshot being a resolution to send convicts to the new lands of the South. But it must be realised that there was no notion of a colony as a society. Mm. Pitt and Sydney, the responsible statesmen, merely wished to solve a troublesome problem in the cheapest manner, while the public were either uninterested or cynical. Accordingly, little provision was made for anything beyond the actual transportation. It was assumed that so large an extent of country under the latitudes, under such latitudes must be capable of producing sufficient to subsist millions of people. More regard was paid to the muskets than to the seed wheat, to military precedents than to food supplies. There was no land policy, no selection of men who understood farming, no provision for time-expired men, no arrangement for intercourse with any other country. Such matters did not matter so long as the infamous assemblage was removed from England. Mm. That's we, how we started. Yeah. And, you know, anyone that knows their history will, will know that, that that's just a whole lot of official language to kind of try to paint what was actually happening, maybe happening as something that could possibly, you know, spark something positive and industrious and, and you know, all these kind of things. Bottom line, bottom line is this country, this whole country was established by white people... As a prison. As a prison. Exactly. To hide their worst parts of their society away, to exile them in the hope that they would starve to death, right? Because and then they cheaper. came out here and realised that they could make money off us. This land, they could make money of us. So I was like, all right. Let's you know, start extracting it. Well, let's, let's, start. let's start rethinking this. Let's start actually organising ourselves and establishing a country based on theft. And but let's not talk about that th- theft. Mm. 
the let's pre- keep painting these people as the thieves and locking them up. And I guess that's 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 what we've gotten to, you know. The whole the whole basis of the way that we've been working is looking to the past to find find answers for the future. Mm. So we've been we've me and you, you know, we've we've been tag teaming this, we've been digging, we've been reading, we've been reaffirming stuff that we already know by reading and revisiting this as well. Um, it's important and it's just so important when you look at these quotes and we look about the things that we're talking about, about how there are these lessons that are coming from the past that directly link the colonisation of this country to the gentrification of our communities now mm. is that the built environment was built to contain mm. and to operate. He said there was no, there was no idea of property of land rights or, or, or property management. It was the built environment in and of itself was instrumentally created to house and to better house and extract wealth from the ground through a prison. And that, that is what, that is what has, lives on in the lineage of this country mm. to this day. And it's ridiculous for you to believe that that's not honestly the truth. There are still remnants from those, from those early contacts. And what, be- what better place to reinforce all of that than the place that it actually comes from? Sydney, the first point of contact, the front line of invasion, um, you know, Redfern, where uh, historically there has been warriors resisting road-making there's been warriors resisting population control and movement. There's been people there. There's been communities there. You know, there's there's been so much happening in Sydney. Um, and, you know, we really have to look at the snapshots today, the demographics today, how these things have, have influenced where we're at right now. And, um, you know... As, as we keep saying, we keep looking to the past to find the, the solutions for the future. And so I've been kind of digging around and, and trying to search Redfern and police and just seeing what comes up. And I found something which is interesting that I, that I thought was um, worth a look. So um, I'll just read through it. Complaints concerning police activities against Aboriginal people in Redfern are not new. So this is actually from... Aboriginal police relations in Redfern with special reference to the police raid of 8th of February 1990, a report commissioned by the National Inquiry into Racist Violence. Racist violence, hmm. Complaints concerning police activities against Aboriginal people in Redfern are not new. It is important to recognise that the extent of complaints concerning discriminatory police methods in Redfern led to the establishment of the first Aboriginal legal service in 1970. In the late 1960s and early 1970s, Aboriginal people claimed that in Redfern they were regularly harassed, arrested without cause, and that they were the subject of police-imposed curfew. Complaints also centred around police activities outside the Empress and Clifton Hotels. As the Ruddock Report noted, the establishment of the ALS was the result of complaints concerning police activities allegedly directed against Aborigines in and around Redfern. It is often difficult for non-Aboriginal Australians to understand the depth of police intervention into Aboriginal life. In discussing the establishment of the ALS in Redfern and the use of curfew in Redfern in 1970, Justice Warden noted, I found, as most people do, the curfew a little hard to believe when I first heard it, but when I observed it operating with my own eyes, I was left with little doubt. The simple position was that any Aboriginal who was on the streets of Redfern at a quarter past ten was simply put into the paddy wagon and taken to the station, charged with drunkenness. 
And that was something that was just literally applied to every Aboriginal person walking along the street, irrespective of any sign of drunkenness in his behaviour. This and the associated problems gave rise to very strong feelings against Aborigines here. I am assuming from police. It goes on. Complaints concerning the treatment of Aboriginal people by police in Redfern area continued during the 70s. In early 1971, complaints were made concerning the arrest and bashing of Aboriginal youth picked up in Victoria Park. Um, that was reported about um, in Sydney Morning, Herald, Sydney Morning Herald on the 21st of May 1971. The youth was charged with using indecent language. Right? We actually can't pinpoint a time when this started. It has always been there. And these are even in these reports to, to, to racist violence. This is why the ALS was set up. You wonder why we keep going on about the erasure of Aboriginal visibility and the Aboriginal community controlled organisations. They were set up specifically to address specific things happening. And it's no, it's, it's, it's no um, coincidence that we've just finished unpacking how important these services are and how in gentrification they're getting rid of this stuff. Now, I just wanted to get back to the curfew which has been a very successful tactic used in Redfern for a very long time. So when I was growing up, when I was about 13, 14, I remember being pulled over on the way to the shop with a couple of younger cousins. And we were told to move on. We were already walking, which I didn't understand that. We were then followed um, and harassed and kept being told to move on. I felt very provoked. Um, these are the kind of things that they regularly do. And then was cautioned and told that we would be arrested if we were found on the streets again. And then I found out that apparently there was a law in the area. I don't actually know if it was actual law. This is the reason why I'm looking this stuff up now, right? They told us that if we were seen again, that we could be charged as an official gang. So the classified... Uh, class, uh, any group of Aboriginal children found in Redfern past a certain time, in groups more than three, could be charged with organised crime syndicates, the same charges that, you know, these people that are smuggling drugs into the country are being charged with. And we were threatened with that. So basically what that was telling me is that I couldn't walk around. I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't even go to the shop with one of my cousins. So that meant that I had to walk on my own. Doesn't that open up, you know, vulnerabilities? Like we're talking like a young, you know, young girl. I've got more. I've got heaps of stuff. Like, we were strip searching the street on the way to school. I don't care what, what things I'm going to find out, that will never, ever be okay. Exactly. It's there are actual policies against that sort of stuff. But, you know, Redfern Police have been doing this stuff for a very long time. The police in Sydney, literally, have kind of been using these tactics since they got here to um, stigmatise, to scare um, you know, because if you're living in fear, you can't actually think. Exactly. You can't make proper decisions, right? It's it's this assumed guilt that they w that they operate within, where you feel in and of yourself just because of your placement in space, whether it be past ten in a group of three, that you are guilty of something, and the guilt is paralyzing. That is that is the issue. They are. It is an induced state of hypervigilance in mm. relationship, and it and it's the fact that they target children. And they place them in these situations and then it's, in and of itself, it's intergenerational because it's happening over and over and over again. 
it's a tactic. It's it's it what is. we're trying to say is this this is a tactic, a tactic at which the government is has been using for a very long time to enforce its way and enforce its power over Indigenous people. It's unacceptable, and we're talking about this stuff so that you guys can understand, as non-Indigenous people, if you're listening, about the experiences of people in these in these areas, how they feel now as a demographic shift is occurring within Redfern again through larger scale gentrification and large scale gentrification through the redevelopment of Waterloo where now the black bodies that were born and raised in these neighbourhoods are seen as foreign and policed mm. as such. Mm. It, pla- it plays into that displacement, dispossessive rationale of colonisation mm. and it's always, always the black body that is treated in this way Mm. in space Mm. and is tested upon through, as we've Mm. talked about in many other episodes, how Redfern has been a testing ground for the prejudicial treatment of Indigenous people that is then scaled nationwide. And colonisation has moved as a wave and affected the whole entirety of of every every single Indigenous people's country at a different point in time. But those experiences are shared and they started here in Sydney. Mm. So we're going to take a cut to some music and we'll be talking about um, a really great community forum that we had um, after the break where we had some really great conversation around we'll some things. We'll be hearing from, from the people. Um, thank you. Stay, keep it locked. This is Survival Guide. I think it's very telling for our community that an inquest is being held down there in the court buildings at the moment that tell a harrowing tale of a boy being deliberately killed because he ate a biscuit. Now, these police continually get away with this, these acts of murder, these acts of violence that, violence that result in the death of our people. There's only been one time in the history of this country where a policeman was actually charged, and that's the Palm Island killing with Chris Hurley. And we know what happened to Mulrungi. The fact that the police don't change in their attitude towards Aboriginal people over the course of this history is telling because it's the same process all the time racism up against poverty and poor and oppressed black people lose all the time because they have the system backing them. They can control our movement and our very lives to the point where this young man's life was taken by big, burly men. It's actually a point where we can't even challenge the system when our people are murdered in the violent way that the police conduct their business with us. We see it on the streets in how our children are spoken to by the police. 
we see it up front and personal every time we have an interaction with the police. So the problem in this country is still as vast and as wide an abyss as it was 230 years ago. It's called racism. It's an embedded system where they don't care about us. They have no sympathy, empathy or compassion towards the violence that's directed by them towards us all the time. You know, as a young person growing up here, like, we know that we was targeted, but it's only a couple of years ago that we're actually finding out about the policies with police, um, how they've been, you know, building dossiers on Aboriginal children as young as, what, eight? Um, and it's actual a part of their policies to be watching Aboriginal children before they've even committed any crimes. And, you know, these kind of tactics um, are very much successful tactics that they've been using in black communities for a very long time um, that I'm not sure people are aware of. Um, and I know for a fact that we were, we were watched and we were monitored. And, you know, that's the word, is monitored. We were monitored very closely. And you know, and I don't want to. I don't want to speak on behalf of anyone, but I know for a fact that that kind of fear can force you to make decisions that are probably, you know, risking your life and things fatal. like that. Yeah, fatal decision-making processes. We actually don't have proper decision-making processes cognitively because of all of this trauma. You know, so I guess maybe we should. Talk about being profiled, uh, being profiled by police, racially or otherwise. Um, as well, walked past, walked through Redfern Park, and coppers had pulled me up because I sat down and had a smoke and went for my bag, and they come up to me after saying, "Are you okay?" I was like, "Of course I'm okay. I'm in my area. What are you coming up to me for?" And then they just walked away. It was like they think they can question everyone and have the right to intimidate people, especially kids, adults, older people. I drove past and the drunks are getting intimidated. It's like, leave them alone. They're not doing nothing to you. And they're walking right up in their face like they want to hit them. It's like, just leave them. Leave us alone. I wonder why we do what we do. Yeah, I agree. Um, my son, we spent many years here in Redfern. And... Uh, He's certainly been targeted for many years. Once uh, uh, my son has addiction issues, um, he doesn't really want to hurt it. He just uses and that's it. But he gets picked on a lot and I get scared. One time the police picked on him and just said, what are you doing? He said, I'm just walking home. He said, you know, he said, and the policeman whacked him across the side of the head with a police baton. He said, don't talk smart to me. And um, uh, with that, my son, King hit him, whacked him and knocked him to the ground and took off. And it kind of rattled me a bit, though. I'm glad he got away, my son, because I, I believe he would have been another death in custody for him to challenge him. But it certainly is embedded in our system here, uh, 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 nothing has changed. Our children are, uh, are harassed. At many times where I live, uh, a lot of us blackfellas live in this particular street there, 
Um, I've seen kids constantly harassed. Uh, there's a big paper bark outside of my uh, window and a lot of them used to come around there, congregate, and there's a little uh, place to meet. And, and um, we all know them, you know, and I, even, TJ used to come there too, Vicky, and um, I, 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 I looked out my window and I noticed a policeman had two young ones and they were frightened and crying and terrified. And, and there were these two grown, grown-ass men had them bailed against the wall. And I said, what you doing? They had these young fellows, little fellows. And he said, he pointed his finger, you shut your mouth, otherwise you'll get thrown in the clink too. And, um, you know, just like it's been mentioned here, it's ingrained. Uh, our children are not free, you know. There's so many of our children who have suffered and it, it, and what is what I believe to it's so great in, in that you don't hear a lot of these stories on mainstream mm. uh, media, and I believe the politicians and the media and the police they're all in each other's pocket mm. uh, to keep uh, uh, us uh, down there like that. These uh, they're giving licenses uh, to men to carry a gun to put a gun on their hip. Uh, no training in dealing with people from different cultural backgrounds. They can be bigots, they can be homophobic, they can be any kind, as long as they don't have flat feet or something like that. So, you know, uh, this is a really, this is, a, this is an area that should be addressed, but it certainly goes right back from history, mm. you know. Uh, I mean, an elder over in Western Australia literally baked to, like, like in an oven, you know, 50... Mm. 50 degree heat in Western Australia, uh, treating an elder like that. Mm -hmm. And the people who were driving that van got off. Mm -hmm. If that was a white person, it would have been a national outcry. Mm -hmm. Our sisters are getting raped and beaten and murdered. And uh, when, it's, uh, when it's a white woman, you know, that doesn't warrant anybody to die. But it's that difference in regards to us being Aboriginal, you know. Uh, 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 the... the, the it's it's still carried on, you know, from history. Deaths in custody have been happening here since he came on that boat. Like I said, Chris Hurley was the only police officer charged with murder in that 230-year history. How many hundreds of police officers of the law have gotten away with murder in this country? And I mean mass murder in some instances. They are blind to their own faults. And anybody that's blind to their own fault is arrogant in the extreme and will come undone through their arrogance. Well, I, I guess, and again, this is why it's so important to have this, inf this conversation, is because there has been no closure since what happened when they murdered TJ. There's been no closure. They actually commended those officers that were involved in that and moved them on to other areas. Um, and we still don't know what don't happened. Don't start me, Dort. The coroner well, this in is that what case, we need to talk about. The coroner in that case dismissed the evidence of all the black witnesses. Because the police said they were unreliable, the coroner also said they were unreliable. Now, these are eyewitnesses. The little child that rang the police, saw the incident, rang the police. That child was unreliable. She's now an adult. The adults that were there and saw it were all, because they were black, they're unreliable. Now, that's the unwritten law of the courts. Black witnesses are unreliable. We lie. Now, the truth is they lie every day, all day. 
Our system is based on truth and you cannot be a liar in our system because it's all our system is based on our survival on a daily basis. So you can't be a liar about where the water is, where the food is, because people die as a result. We have learned to look after mobs of people over a very long period of time. They don't know how to do that. Or they lost that skill a long time ago when they walked away from their own land. So they killed their own hearts and they've killed their own souls a long time ago. They will go to the appropriate place. The problem is they keep doing enormous damage to our people while they walk the mortal coil. Well, the problem, problem is here is that this community is not safe because we literally have people out there in the community at large that have gotten away with murder 15 years ago and are still getting away with it today and they're black. They're black men, you know, the ones that it had happened to and I guess this is why as a young person that's grown up here and as a mother of a, of a child now, you know, this stuff is of the utmost importance because this is the stuff that, you know, I know that when we were younger we were alerted when there were rapists, um, abusers um, in the community, um, you know, whereas now we still don't even know who was involved in the incident in March as well, which is, you know, it's we terrifying. We don't know nothing. Like, this is ridiculous. Something needs to be... I want answers. This isn't right. I want to know what happened, how it happened. Like, I don't... I don't get why it was ten minutes and then he's dead. Like, how does that happen? And now I've got to raise his children without him. And they get to go home to their precious little families and get to do whatever they want with their families. I've got to sit there with a broken family. Oh, but they don't care. They do this over and over and over and over again to our people. They don't care. They you, knew won't, what, you won't find solace. Yeah, they knew them. what they wanted to do. They'd done it with TJ. They, they, they had it planned out that they wanted to kill my partner the same way that they killed one of my friends that, I'm, that our community is still grieving on after 14 years and they do it a week before TJ's 14th anniversary. Like, how dare they? How dare they come into our community and make out that they got trust, that we got this trust thing going on and then... There's no trust. Police, I don't trust well, police as far as I can throw them. I can't stand them. I never have. I think we maybe you've touched on the heart of the issue. There are people in our own community, black people, who aid and abet these people. Um, the gentrifiers, whatever you want to call them, the, colon the colonists, they are certainly colonised in the mind, still those black people that think White people have our best interests at heart, number one, and that police will protect us, number two. They have never, ever been a friend of Aboriginal people and their attitude means that they never will be friends of our people. And that's it with my partner. Once they targeted him since he was 13, there was days where he, I've seen him get dead set, bashed, booted in the head, stomped on and everything. I had to jump in front of him and I got booted, but that's what you do, you protect yours. Why can they protect theirs, but we can't protect ours? Like, why is it a one-way street with them, but we've got to sit there and deal with it on an everyday basis and wonder who's going to be next in our area, which one of the 
our friends that we've grown up with all our life that have kids now, whose kids are going to they take next? That's the scariest thing about it. For my partner, he got targeted ever since he lost his dad and once he lost his dad, they thought that he, he would go down the wrong spiral, so they already targeted him and pushed him to do the stuff that he used to do. And then they knew exactly what they was going to do. They knew that they wanted to kill him. They knew that who they wanted to kill that day. They now they're sitting there saying that there was raids in every flats in Waterloo. There was no such thing. Like, don't, don't try and condone killing someone, taking a family man, taking a father away from a child and their partner because he gets... The only way to get away, the only way to get away from them is to run and to do whatever is needed. There was times where he was getting his bike chipped. There was times where one girl copper would jump on his leg and then try... You heard he'd come home telling me about the copper sitting there saying, just break the little black cunt's fucking leg, just break his fucking ankle, the black dog, don't let him fucking get away. And then next thing you know, he's coming home and me and my kids have to... We see coppers driving past every second. We hear Polair driving past every second. It's like, if you're going to run through a house, run through a house, don't torment us like this. Like, and what for? He didn't do nothing. It's not like he went out and raped someone or killed someone. And there's actual people free. Exactly. and. There's pedophiles out there that are getting away on bail conditions. Protected and by the police. Yes, and they're protected. You can't even get their name. And there they are putting my partner up on blast on Facebook over petty-ass crimes. And then the next day he's dead. And he goes to this house that is a so-called informant. And then friggin' ten minutes later is dead. Mm. How does that work out? Like, mm. come on now, I'm not dumb. We ain't dumb. This is the life that we live for the... This is what we are born into. Mm. Our children are born into it. Once they know that that's that person's child, they're already targeted by the day that they're born. Once they see that woman walking around with a big belly, it's like, oh, well, we're going to get this one. We don't care if it's a boy or a girl. They know how we're all connected. They know all yeah. of our relationships. Look, for all those gentrifiers, those black sellouts, one day this will be your child that we're talking about. What are you, you going to do then when the police are kicking down your door looking for your son and they take him away? and then you never see the child again. So this, this incident, the most recent one, there was a Facebook post, there was a campaign um, conducted by police and they went into damage control as soon as the death, um, as soon as my cousin fell to his death. Um, you know, so we've actually been digging, just the, the black women in the community have found out a lot more than what any official parties would tell us. No one, still to this day, how much do you, no I, one's spoken to you, right? I know nothing. I know nothing, no one. The only time a police officer has come to my house was the minute that he passed away because everyone was up at my house with my children and then that was it. And what happened? What did he come there for? He come to tell us 
what happened. I was actually at the incident when it happened. I see my partner there and I went up to the police and I said, can you tell me who it is? One woman copper come up to me, she goes, love, can you tell me who it is? I said, you're the copper, tell me who it is. I ain't being no snitch. And then she turned around and said, look, can you just tell me? I said, is it such and such? She goes, yeah, love it is. I said, well, why the fuck didn't you just fucking tell me that? Mm. And then... That's not how you deal with someone that's just lost... My everything. They come into our community ready for riots. They don't come in here looking to give give compassion to somebody that's and lost their that's partner at the at the hand of the police. Straight after that happened, there was police driving straight past my house all night for at least two, three weeks straight. Like I was gonna do something. Oh. I don't want to do anything violent. I want answers. I want justice. I want something done where I want, if they did kill my partner, I want them charged like any other normal person would get charged. Why is it you a two-way, yeah. You want closure. I want my kids to know that. You want to feel safe. Yeah. The whole issue with losing our nephew the way we did, they went into damage control. And part of that damage control is blurring and muddying the water so much that most people can't see the direction of where truth's coming from. And that's what they've done. Five, six months. It was all shut up, shut down because of the retirement of the commandant at Redfern Police Station. He's now gone, thank God. Oh, Let's hope the new one. He specifically come into my house. He's the one that come into my house saying that about my partner passing away and saying that he doesn't want no extra dramas going on because he's going to retire in June or July. And oh. I ripped him then, didn't yeah, I? Yeah, and only Jen ripped him straight away. Just can't believe. I, I, just, I know. I'm, I just, I just, know. she lost a partner, yeah. a, and it's a joke. No sensitivity it's towards. It's been treated. Yeah. They, they, they haven't look. They haven't shown any human. humanity in the whole time, no sis. But they've never showed any humanity, and that's kind of the point, right? And I only found out. I told them I wanted no police involved on my partner's funeral because they wanted to get a car to bring out eleven inmates from the jail where my my cousins wasn't allowed to go to their father's funeral because they was incarcerated. So I don't get why 11 inmates would be allowed to come to... A why they would change the rules in this particular circumstance. Yes, yeah. and that's what I said. I said, no, well, I said, no, I don't want that. And then I really had no say over it. And then when I buried him, I found out... I thought there was no police there. I found out there was six coppers undercover in normal clothes at my partner's funeral thinking that there was going to be a riot. I just wanted to send my partner off. The way that he... He was a very lovable, outspoken person. He would... Yes, so I wanted to make it the way that he wanted it. I've, I've, been, I've been talking about the layout of this community for a while and really looking at that, um, you know, the toxic sort of stuff that uh, people have to develop to survive with when they're in jail. It's, we, have the, we have very similar um, stuff happening in this community. And basically, um, 
sometimes it actually feels like we are, when we go home at night, we're going into ourselves because they can literally kick down your door any time and get in there. And, um, yeah, and, and, you know, with my cousin, I remember it was like clockwork. It was clockwork. It was like every couple of, every couple of weeks, same time, they were booting the door. And, you know, he'd ring us up to come around and help him clean up before his mum got home because he probably got blamed for it. You know, and that's the sort of, and this is as a young person that's grown up here, goes in the community, um, schools and tries to talk to young people. This is the stuff that, you know, we're trying to get young black kids to realise that the pressures that they have, nobody else even has any idea of what that's like. They don't, they don't have to navigate the same stuff that kids have to navigate growing up here. Uh, how many of our people have to be laid down on this altar for the martyrs? before they realise that they're the ones with the problem, not us. I, I keep saying it, I keep reiterating their racism mm -hmm. is what makes them kill us. But what's part and parcel of it? It's, it's, it's that power and our powerlessness. And part of that construct, that white power construct with the police is they need their compliant blacks. They need their Jackie Jackies. Are you listening, all you Jackie Jackies out there, yeah. you black gentrifiers, you sellouts? Yeah, sellouts, black gentrifiers. And it's sort of like that's, they are too, um, it's like a psychological genocide. Mm. Uh, it's, it's like they are too um, gentrified to see how it is. It's like for them, well, I guess they recognise that they are powerless, but as long as their ass is looked after, mm. uh, uh, they've lost that. That, that spiritual connection with their people and the land and everything that is about being Aboriginal. And we should never, ever come to that place where we compromise that. Mm -hmm. I would never do that in a, uh, a million years. And yes, we've got our native police on today. And listening to hear this young woman's cry, her mm -hmm. powerlessness, this, you know, mm -hmm. I have to go to people of this country like her to deal with that anger because despite a, a, a commission, Royal Commission to Death and Custody 30 years ago, it's worse now. It, it's it is. unbelievably worse. You know, it just... It just you just got to, like, that psychological genocide process, you just got to turn it off. You've got to find a process. Mm. You know, because it's very difficult to live with when you are a black conscious person. And I guess that's what we can offer as, you know, um, young people that have access to all these university areas and has, you know, this show at the moment. We're doing a lot of research. We're unpacking a lot of the stuff that's affecting us and really just kind of having evidence-based stuff. Um, but, you know, this is the first of, of a couple of conversations that we want to have. The next one we want to have is about housing maintenance. Please come, tell other people to come. Um, I, I don't want to end it right now, but I'm just kind of trying to, kind of trying to kind of wrap it up and just thank yous for just being so honest and open and, you know, it, it just, this, this, is, this is what we're working for, is so that all of us can have a voice. <laughs> Hello, you're listening to Survival Guide with Joel and Lorna on Radio Skid Row 88.9 FM. 
Um, we just played you a kind of long um, excerpt from a community forum that we held at 107 Projects in Redfern on Tuesday night. Mm. Um, Big first, thank you to yeah. the community in 107 as well. We had a really good turnout. It's great to see that support and just that hearing of testimony and really just kind of being present in finding ways forward together. Yeah, um, just like how we said before, it's it's it feels like there's not really any space for community to gather at the moment mm-hmm. and to talk about this stuff. You know, the fact that there hasn't been a kind of a community forum on these issues even since um, TJ's passing, and, mm, which was 15 years ago, and now. that we that we don't feel supported in those ways um, is really important and really inspiring to see that we have been offered those opportunities, but also just the fact that everyone showed up and and the strength in that and the fact that we have support for each other and it's really good to see that because mm. sometimes you don't always feel it and you don't mm. always get to see it so it's really important it's all it's a way that we can kind of go take a step further into um understanding some of these issues and, and the strategies to get around these tactics that mm. are kind of being used against us and used against people in our community mm. and we're planning more as well so keep your ears and eyes um, posted yeah, we're posting them up info. on Facebook and on the Skid Row website and a uh, Skid Row Facebook site with um be posting up another date for a secondary forum and some other events that we'll be mm. hosting to uh, put up on the air because we need to share this platform to the people who have issues in this community and that's mm. what this is about. It's a survival guide. It's about how we're going to be able to survive. Mm, together. Mm. Um, because our survival is not based on individuality, right? It's not based on on the individu- individualistic kind of outlooks the way that Western society is and that alone is kind of destining us to fail, right, is because the emphasis is all on this, 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 whereas our our societies are total opposite. Like we survive in collectives. We survive collectively. You know, we pool our resources and our strengths and our skills together to get through whatever's going on. And again, you know, that's why we're always honouring our ancestors by looking at these lessons and how we can reiterate them to who needs it today. Um, So much to unpack. So much to unpack in that conversation. Um, uh, 2004 Palm Island riot, first man to be charged in the whole history of this country, he was the f- is the f- only police officer to have been charged and he has been moved on to other areas, which again just triggers me a little bit because when that happened with TJ, all of the officers were actually commended for their bravery um, and I really question how brave it is to pull an impaled child off a fence and watch them internally bleed out and then strip search them for drugs or whatever it was that you were sweating on getting. Um, and then it just brings it back to, you know, um, the first white men that were charged in the colony for massacring our people, um, again, which is very close to my my family story, um, you know, with the Mile Creek Massacre. Um, we, was, we were always told stories about descending from survivors, two young boys um, that were taken in by the stations and given the last name Munro as a way to hide them while there was an investigation to the murder um, that was pushed by Henry Denga at the time, who was the landowner and, you know, who was the one I- hiring all these Aboriginal people. Um, there was 
again, um, just linking it back, the people that were involved in the Wild Creek Massacre were rampaging. They were mid-rampage um, and actually started in a place called Waterloo Creek. Coincidence, right? You know, you see how this stuff keeps linking back in and the cycles keep continuing. Students of history, you got to keep yourself aware. These these systems and these, these issues, they play out in cycles. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the whole point about pointing out toxicity, right? Is if you don't know how to point it out, you're stuck in it. Um, Waterloo Creek massacre. White people, white men were actually given status of a sh- a b- a given statuses of sheriff. They were given temporary, um, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, temporary powers, temporary formal positions to round up my people, Camilleroy people, and murder them. It was a state-sanctioned massacre that not a lot of these history books like to mention. So those people were still rounding up and looking for people that had got away from the Waterloo Creek Massacre and they were told that they were then in Mile Creek. Linking it back to, um, as one person said in there, legitimising the murder of our people, and that is all a lot of these historical records will ever do, is legitimising the murder of our people. Um, I wanted to bring it back about, you know, Aboriginal voices being dismissed, dismissed evidence. All of our accounts are often dismissed in the inquest stages. And again, I have to go back to, you know, the Mile Creek Massacre and the court case and um, the verbatim stuff that I've seen. Um, There was a, 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 a documentary that's kind of um, it was all based on verbatim. It was it was looking at Australia's prominent trials, and I actually that was my first featured role that I, I um, acted in. Um, but if you want to look at that court case, check out Australia on Trial: The Mile Creek Massacre um, episode. There's a huge conversation when a, a witness, an Aboriginal witness, is presented to testify about how many people were murdered. There was a whole conversation in the courts with that person not there whether he was human enough to stand up in court, whether he was Christian enough, whether he was civilised enough to stand up in court. That was the first time that an Aboriginal voice was ever heard in the Australian courts because before that, we were seen as animals. So you can, you, can, you can see the steps and stairs and how we've got to this point, right? If we look at history and we look at those cases in particular, and the way that Aboriginal people are treated when they are brought to the stand to, test, to testify in colonial courts, in courts that are literally based on the genocide of our people and the theft of land. A lot of a lot of programs, whether their intention, you know, whether their intentions are good or not, a lot of programs are really exposing young Aboriginal children to the police, which is then giving them more. It's giving them more um, access to these children, getting to know these kids, getting to know what families they come from, getting to know their relationships to other children, getting to know them um, intimately. And these are the kind of things that enable them to harass and focus and identify us on the streets and in crowds of people. And that's another tactic that they used really well in Redfern and Waterloo that I can testify to, that it seems to be happening historically and nationally. 
there's programs at the moment there's a lot of people in my community that are literally offering up next generations of children on the chopping board for murderers to have access to and people might jump when I call them murderers but this is the thing right they've gotten away with it not just once but twice in this community yeah we haven't been talking about it but I think it's important to acknowledge um what had happened earlier this year in Waterloo and that and that that's a really that's a really important point that we that we want to draw focus to because there has not been any remark statement any any conceivable or um something that you would even call a statement or an, any form of comprehensive justice given towards um what happened to Patrick Fisher early this year um and I know and this is it was literally almost a week shy of TJ's anniversary as well exactly um, which is literally 15 years almost to the day and you think about that kind that is having it's it's let alone the un the unspeakable acts that led to both of these young men's deaths but the fact that they coincided in this way, the way that it holds a community in a state of fear, triggering those responses, that traumatic stress that's associated with that. We're talking about these tactics that are being used on these communities, used since time immemorial, since white arrival on black bodies. So I've been talking about, you know, um, in my community even, because a lot of people have really been digging their heels in um, and, you know, trying to further stigmatise my cousin, you know. Um, And this is what they do. Um, There was comments about TJ Hickey being a thug and why is there a memorial, Um, you know, a a, a famous um, Aboriginal um, voice that a lot of white people really love to hear. said that a couple of years ago. you know, th- this is the thing, right? Is that the first time in 2004 that was a child, that was someone under 18. We were young people at that time. I would have been about 15, 16. My cousin would have been 16, 17. We've grown up with that fear, that knowing that murders are at large, murderers have been at large in the community for a very long time. How do we live with that? How do we walk the streets? How do we go to school? How do we function normally when we know that one of us were killed and nothing's been done? There's been no answers. There's been nothing. You know, the inquests that have happened have been a joke. The inquests that have been happening have just further traumatised this community. You know, we keep asking, where's that bike? Where is his bike? the smoking gun in whatever investigation that should be happening, that never got down to it because these things are failing us. They're destined to fail us. They're set up to keep us locked up, isolated, excluded, uneducated. Have we got something to go to? Sorry, I'm getting right on it because it just... it. Again, you know, this is how triggered I am in all of this. We still do not know anything. These inquests don't go far because in the history of colonisation, they have learnt how to cover their tracks really well. 
and it's 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 that fact it's 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 within that context that we are, we have to pull ourselves back and understand that these are the people who have the power and they are the only ones that they have to an- answer to and this mm-hmm. is what we're asking for is that when we ask for inquests and we ask for more information just for the plain respect for the families involved the people that they've lost the only people that are investigating the police are the police and that's completely unacceptable they're learning how to evade community through these actions and it can't it can't continue to happen and you can't say that that's not how these things get to be played out so we have uh, we have some recordings taken we've been playing a few of the chants over the past couple of you know over the show today um taken from the rally held in memory of tj hickey on the anniversary of his death um it earlier this every year. year and this happens every year where there is community call for justice in regards to this. We have a member of um, ISJA down in Melbourne um, speaking on these facts uh, in relation to the injustice. Um, So we'll just open it up to that for you guys to have a listen and we'll critique and discuss it afterwards. We'll be back. Keep it locked. 14 years on, once again, I bring a solidarity message from his Melbourne to Gail, her immediate and extended family and community and to everyone involved in this long-running fight for justice for TJ. Oh, how this racist system would dearly love Gail and all of us who want justice for TJ to simply walk away. But we've got news for them. We're not going to walk away. We'll fight for that justice for as long as it takes. Justice is something we're all entitled to, and it's not just an entitlement of the powerful and the privileged. One of his Melbourne's demands is for the establishment of elected community-based review boards with full legal and legislative powers to investigate, discipline and charge police, prison and custodial health officers found to be involved in the death in custody, negligence or lack of duty of care to those they have a responsibility to and for. Perhaps if police didn't investigate police, and these review boards existed, we wouldn't need to be rallying and marching here today. The system confirmed just how corrupt and racist it is from the time of TJ's murder in custody. Alarm bells rang and we realised the process of denying justice was in full swing, with former New South Wales Premier Bob Carr's unswerving support for his police officers, police officers sitting together in one room as they concocted their statements. Coroner John Abernethy's farcical coronial inquest. The idea of parliamentary inquiry is being spoken of at the moment. Should that inquiry eventuate, it must consider the failings of that sham coronial inquest. The exact cause of death not fully explored. First aid implications, bioengineering aspects of the mechanism of injury and bystander witness evidence, none of which were fully pursued. All witness evidence not heard. The arrival of a police rescue van and its turning away by Constable Mick Hollingsworth at the incident scene not being investigated. The forensic scene examination incomplete. The evidence obtainable from the fence and pathway not obtained and the area steam cleaned with undue haste. Within a matter of days all five police vehicles involved in the event had been steam cleaned. Repairs made and had been repainted thus destroying any possible vital evidence. Detailed examination of the deceased's clothing not made in reference to the deceased's injuries didn't occur. The bicycle wasn't presented at the coronial inquest and it's been stated that there was interference to that crucial piece of evidence 
by investigating police and a Redfern Police Aboriginal Community Liaison Officer following instructions from senior Redfern Police Officers. VKG records for the 14th of February 2004 weren't presented. Personal mobile phone records between all five officers alluded to by counsel represent, uh, assisting the coroner but not actually brought into evidence. Transcripts of all calls made of these, by these five police officers between 9am to midday on the 14th of February 2004 must be produced. The following people all need to appear before the inquiry. Constables Hollingsworth, Rocker, Rimmel and Reynolds. Ms ba Virginia Bowie-Hickey. Ambulance service personnel who attended the incident scene. Police rescue personnel who attended the incident scene but were sent away by Hollingsworth. Aboriginal police liaison officers who know the story. Aboriginal detective very much involved in the events of 14th of February 2004 but moved by police from Redford Station on the day that TJ died. Also moved away quickly from the coronial inquest by State Coroner John Abernethy. It's outrageous that more than a quarter of a century after the Royal Commission into Deaths in Custody handed down its 339 recommendations, not one of those recommendations has been fully implemented. Since that time, there have been almost 400 more Aboriginal deaths, murders in custody. As we remember TJ today, we must also remember all those whose lives have been taken as deaths, murders in custody, including John Pat, Eddie Murray, Daniel Yock, Murunji Dumachi, Mr Ward, Mr Briscoe, Ms Jew, Mr Langdon, Wayne Fallon Morrison, David Dungay, Eric Whittaker, Tane Chatfield. Just recently, in this particular area, Mr Fisher, I believe a 39-year-old man has also died in custody in Townsville. Is it any wonder we're standing here 14 years on demanding justice for TJ, but we will demand it. We won't go away. So what do we want? We want justice for TJ. So maybe we can all do a bit of a chant after that big rap I've just blared on about, but it's all relevant. It's so relevant. We just can't put it away. So what do we want? Justice for TJ. What do we want? Justice for TJ. What do we want? We're not going away. Because the racial profiling that led to TJ's death is one of the systemic problems. We say murder! We say murder! This is a call for accountability. It's not okay that the police get to just do what they want. And this is what we're going to keep talking about. Um, the relationship that there is in this community now between Indigenous people, police and the new community that's forming is only exacerbating these issues. And we need to talk about the relationship between police within the colonial context but with also within this context, which is still the colonial context, in gentrifying black neighbourhoods. Well, this, this is the front line, you know, and this is kind of how we're framing it, is that everything that we're experiencing has kind of started here. So if you really want to 
kill this beast, you got to do it here at the jugular, at the main point, the heart of it all, where it's all started. And I guess this is why it's so triggering, you know, to have grown up in this community um, and have access to all this sort of stuff. But I'm not quite sure, you know, how much, how much my mob and the people that I've gone to school with who are now the people that are most vulnerable raising children after surviving all of these things and carrying that ongoing trauma you know how much money has been pumped in this community after the riots and after we've seen children respond emotionally go back and look at those tapes they are children burning down the police station kids don't wake up one day and go oh i think it might be a good idea to go and set fire to something it takes a lot to get to that point the same way that it takes a lot for someone to jump over a balcony instead of actually dealing with police. And this is kind of the fear that, uh, you know, we're trying to unpack and I'm trying to get people, especially my own mob, to understand what we are having to deal with because we don't actually get to think about it too much because, again, that's that thing about living in fear, right? When you're cornered, you can't actually breathe. When you're drowning, you can't see that shore. You just, you just see everything around you. Um, I wanted to just uh, go back, um, there were some notes after speaking to our deadly producer, Hannah, who has been such a great support through this whole process and this whole journey. Um, we was just talking about finding that policy was the suspect targeting management plan. Um, how do we know that we are on this list? Um, and what grade of risk are we? You know, these are some of the things that you can do. Find out because Hannah tried to find out for me and we didn't get any answers back, which again is very much what happens um, and is the official kind of response to these things when we kind of start tugging at the colonialism and at the injustices and how how dehumanised we have been in, in this all, right? Um, success, successful tactics that have worked is, is keeping us in fear following monitoring monitoring us until we slip up you know this is why it was so important for us to know our rights at a young age and these are all things that the legal service and all these older fellows really put in place to to arm us with our rights is that you know the first initial stages of when kids get picked up this is how they end up getting charged for stuff that they probably have no idea about. You know, they fit the description. I've been told all my life I fit the description. I really, really wonder what that description is because, you know, in all these different instances, I seem to be it. Um, ongoing conditioning. Grooming. I've been accosted by grown men in blue uniforms at the age of like 13, 14, and asked how much I would cost. This is grown men coming into this community. Public humiliation. Me and many others were strip searched in the street by men. It just goes to uh, you know. It goes it on and on and on and on and on. And you know, this is this is a little bit this is a little bit healing for me. Um, to be able to talk about this. Again, you know, people wonder why I talk about how radical it is to be given a mic after being told to shut up all your life. And this is why. 
you know linking all of this stuff linking all of this trauma and thank you and i mean it's important that we provide not only this platform to ourselves but to To the people who don't have access and need answers and i think that that's what we're that's what we're trying to ask for and that what we're trying to highlight today for this episode really show you the links between these relationships throughout history between the police and the indigenous community and how these things are playing out in today's space um we need direct accountability from the police they they can't answer to themselves they need to answer Mm -hmm. to us we need community elected boards just Mm -hmm. like this woman from is just saying and just like lorna has already asked for before we need to be able to run these inquiries and inquests Mm -hmm. on our own behalf we need to front these questions and we need to front these questions ourselves we are demanding accountability for the things that have gone on over the last 15 years from that one point to now there has been too many people who too many too many young people in this community marginalized displaced dispossessed killed so the stigmatization of black children has gotten so ingrained into the way that media play out um and the way that they talk about redfern and waterloo that it's gotten to the point where they kind of just show images of the flats and stuff like that they could be talking about something totally unrelated but they keep using that image um you know and they keep using images of our young people bounded you know hurt um they left my cousin there lying all day. You know, this is the stuff that they do. They named flats after Captain Cook right there in the housing projects. Daniel Salander was the one that actually reminded, um, you know, King George about the Great South Land that Captain Cook had, had discovered. Um, you know, th- these are all names that we walk past every single day. We're reminded we're reminded that we are not looked at as human. Um, these inquests, you know, a lot of them. We had David Gundy mentioned um, earlier in that recording. You know, for people that don't know, look him up. David Gundy was shot after being woken up by a raiding party. He did nothing wrong. He was literally in a house and woke up in the horrors and got shot by police for that reaction. You know, you look at the things that they do. They've been corralling us. They've been rounding us up since they got here. And now they've been blaming us for reacting and being scared. <sighs> I can go on and on. I found an interesting um, I found an interesting uh, quote here. A statement from the former... Now former. Mm. He's just left. Um Commissioner at the Redfern um, Police Station. And it was mentioned in the community forum that when my cousin passed away that he was in damage control. He was going around trying to explain stuff but not giving details um, and then reminding people that he wants to retire in in around July, August, which is what's happened, you know. Um, These people can come here, take their money, get their money, feed their children and go. What happens to us? What, how do we deal with this? Where is the support and where are the resources being directed towards this community and how to deal with these things? Why don't we have programs directed towards these communities for the trauma that is mm. connected and mm. inevitable in relationship to this police brutality, this stigmatisation of our young people, this treatment from literally birth? 
Mm-hmm. How even before? Yep. Just like, they're, we they're, heard. like we heard, they're watching the relationships. They're taking note of how we all but know each got, other. But we've got a statement. We, we've got a statement. Okay, so I found an article by a Daily Telegraph, and it's more about housing. And you know, this is the thing: is that they're intrinsically linked. Housing and stigmatization of black children and police brutality. All of this stuff is intricate. Sorry, it's so linked up. You can't even. You can't even. Anyway, I found. I found this intrinsically, intricately. (laughs) Anyway, in the seven years, Superintendent Luke Freudenstein has commanded the Redfern Local Area Command. The crime rate that was once the embarrassment of the state. They just blatantly come out and say that. Um, it, once the embarrassment of the state has rapidly abated. In May 2005, just one month, there were 100 ro- robberies recorded in the district. They don't talk about what that district is. Sorry, I'm, I'm already critiquing. 100 robberies recorded in the district with, with the Waterloo Towers, the epicentre of such deeds. In the last 12 months, the LAC has yet to reach triple figures and suicide towers virtually a ghost from the past, they reckon. 2005 is one year after TJ's death. This person, although they reckon they've gotten rid of the crime rates, still has not answered the community on two, not one, but two murders. It's completely unacceptable. But yet he's thinking he's patting himself on the back here on his way out. And this is the processes. This is the this is that kind of willful neglect which we see play out across many scales, not just within the police, the policing of these communities, but also in the treatment of maintenance for the housing in these communities. You know, they go nine years without doing any maintenance upheaval on any of the towers or the walk-ups in the Waterloo um, public housing site. And then when they are threatened, they do the bare minimum and then, and then pat themselves on the back when they're just doing their goddamn job. It's ridiculous. It's... This willful neglect—it's the way, and it's the way in which we see urban redevelopment play out across the entirety of the city. Areas of our cities are left to decay and fall into complete disorder, and then they are rediscovered with the help of foreign investment and new government policy, new statewide decision making, pulling it out of the context and out of the responsibility of the city, out of the ability for anyone who actually lives in the city to make an argument against them and they are reinvigorated, rejuvenated and then resold, redistributed to who? Not us. Um, I think we need to be talking about, again, bring this back to the ways in which we need to hold these people accountable. If, if you're listening, mm. if you are... If you are mob and you are you are here with us and you are listening to this and we're trying to help you understand, help you better navigate this system, help you understand that we are holding forums through which you can come and talk to us about these issues, mm. but also we need to take this to where we can. I mean, mm. I've got some, we're going to play another recording now, engaging again with the conversation around the injustice felt by TJ and the community and how we need to call for an inquest on those on those happenings, on what on those events and that we need to hold the police accountable. Um, at just, the end, Sorry, I was just going to backtrack. The Redfern riots were the thing that justified the Redfern Waterloo Authority being established and that's we talked about that back in episode, what, two? Yeah, and we'll be bringing that back into another conversation when we're talking about the, 
you know, chasing up these leads about where this where this money goes when it comes into developing this community and where mm. and what happens because mm, we it. ain't seen none of it because we ain't seen none of it. Um, so I'm gonna it's play. Like, it's, 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 this is the thing, right? It happened again. The incident that sparked all this stuff has happened again. And they're using it probably, and they're gonna be using it as leverage. You'll well, see. They're, they're very quiet at the against moment. Against the community. Mm. Well, the thing is, is that that incident happened in the Department of Housing property as well. And everyone's real quiet. And it uses it to further stigmatise the communities. And these are things that were originally built to house marginalised people and now being seen as the root of all our problems when it's not the case. Mm. We need to fight There's for more equitable way. access to housing and resources. Um, and this is what we're saying. This is how this links up to the whole conversation around gentrification and colonisation. It's a tactic used to disperse and displace us. This violence is done on... A physical scale on the individual and it plays out to affect the communities in much larger ways so now we're going to cut to some audio of some state representatives talking about their responsibility to be engaged um lo and behold it's not either of it's not any member of the two leading parties in this country unfortunately but you know we have to we have to acknowledge the fact that there is support for this community in other political and, th and that there needs to be political will and that we ask you as listeners to be accountable and involved in these issues. If you live in Redfern, if you live in the surrounding areas, if you're more interested in these topics, these issues, educate yourself, get around these issues, make, use, leverage your own privilege to help in these events and to help mm. open up this conversation for the community. <sighs> we'll be holding events coming up. You'll see them. Um, we would love some more people to come along. We had a really great turn up for the first one. We're covering a few other topics. Oh, yeah. But back to that, here is um, Jenny Leung and David Shoebridge talking. Say, please do not get it twisted. Colonialism is the root of it all. Yeah. Thank you very much. Because I'm sick of my people dying in jail. All they eat is chains and keys. Why don't they chain and lock their own kids up? Have they got any feelings? No. Thousand to one on our children in jail. Where is our justice? This is our country. Where's the Queen? I have a go at her any time. This is Australia, not London. I'm sick of the killing folks. anyone at the hands of the New South Wales Police. I do not stand for it, it is not acceptable and we need to see real justice in this state. I understand that there's a clerk up and a bench. It's been a long time coming and I want to congratulate and thank everybody that has been part of pushing for that. I can't even imagine the strength that it takes and the determination that it takes to be able to continue that struggle. Can I just say that no matter what happens to that Waterloo development as a person that represents that area, I will make sure 
that we continue to respect the need to recognise and commemorate what occurred on that site and that we provide that recognition in consultation and connection with the family. And I also want to say that I understand um, that David has given some commitments and we'll talk to you now about a few things to do with what we can do in the immediate future so we continue to push for justice. It is unacceptable that police would internally investigate police for their own actions. We need independent oversight and review of police and I am committed to making sure that we see that. For Aboriginal justice in this state, but for any activist, for any person that wants to stand up to the bad decisions made in that place by the Liberal National Government, we need to have protection and the ability to stand up and exercise our right to speak out, to speak out against what is the injustices that are going on and to gather on the streets like we are today. I from the Greens, Jenny Leong, the member for Newtown, will continue to stand with you in that struggle and as I say, if there is anything more that I can do to assist you in your absolutely amazing struggle for justice and sovereignty, then I continue. I actually take being called a rat by rail as uh, one of those uh, uh, welcoming moments. Um, uh, thank you so much for doing the walk today with Gail and the family. Gail, um, here you are outside Parliament again demanding justice, surrounded by friends and family and community, and we're with you in the struggle for justice so that TJ gets justice and you and the family get justice. The fight here is to stop police investigating police. We'll never get justice while police investigate police. And I, I, this is not the first rally that's been out the front of Parliament today. I was out with another rally, a similar number of people just up there about local government. Um, against what the uh, New South Wales government did. Guess how many police there were at the other rally? Bugger all. I didn't even see a single police officer at the other rally. But out here, when the Aboriginal community have come into Parliament to demand justice, you're surrounded by police. And police horses like they always are. And I'm sick of it. I'm sick of that unfair policing of Aboriginal rallies that every time I come here I see horses and police in these numbers. I'm sick of it. So, it's not the individual police here's fault. I don't blame any of them individually. And you know, they're public servants doing their job. I blame the government and their senior officers who continue to over-police rallies of Aboriginal people who are doing nothing more than standing here and demanding justice and using your civic rights to hold this government to account. I, I, I condemn the government for the over-policing of Aboriginal people and we see it on the streets right here, right now, like we always do with Aboriginal rallies. Sick of it. Um, I gave a commitment down there this morning, down at Waterloo, and I spoke with Jenny, and it's a commitment we both give you. That we have a commitment, I gave the commitment to move the motion today calling for a parliamentary inquiry into TJ's death and the circumstances of the And I've done it. I did it. But I don't want to pretend it's going to be an easy job to get that inquiry. There's a bunch of other MPs in there who don't want to look, who don't want to see who are blind to the calls for justice, ignorant of the calls for justice. There's a broader commitment that I make, and the Greens and Jenny and I together make, to Aboriginal people across this state, for a proper inquiry into the unfair policing of Aboriginal people, into the over-policing of Aboriginal people, and to try and get the balance right and to reinstate fair rights for Aboriginal people, especially when it comes to policing this state. That's our commitment to you.
Um, I want to wrap it up from there. I reckon you should be inside Parliament, not out here. But the powers that be say that if you have a rally outside Parliament, you can't come in. They're actually scared of the public. They're particularly scared of anyone who comes, um, uh, who dares to look Aboriginal and the Aboriginal community. They're literally frightened of you. And they should be frightened of you because you have enormous power and enormous strength and 60,000 years of history and culture to, to win your struggle and demand justice. Thank you so much. He's telling us what to do. We've got to start going into Parliament now. We can't let no one stop us. This is our country, our land. Justice for all, not just for the boys in blue, not for Parliament House. They sit on their asses. Oh, i got to say it, Jenny, that plaque has been gone. It's been gone. It's, it's gone. There's no more TJ Hickey plaque. There's no more any kind of signage to say that. It's been gone. It's taken. It's been. It's not there. I actually took someone there the other day to show them. So we need accountability from you guys as well to be able to show us your commitment to these things. This is a call out. We need to right be calling now. out everyone. Simple, simple thing. Them fellas just talked about, you know, having TJ Hickey Park there and how they're going to do whatever they can to ensure that that doesn't go. Well, it's gone. So what you going to do? Come on now, you mob or you white people that. You know, learn how to speak so emotively at these rallies. Step it up. I'm, I'm really triggered here and I'm literally shaking. I've just found a piece of information that I wasn't aware of. Um, and But it's actually not too far from the truth. It's actually not too far from what we're talking about. I just read um, some one of the earlier um, articles around what happened with TJ and they actually said that at the age of 15 he was um, kicked out of Walgett, out of the place that he grew up in, out of his mother's Department of Housing property in Walgett for being a public nuisance, which brought him here to Sydney in the first place. And again, you know, this is, this is, he, his face is now synonymous with gentrification. His face is now synonymous with young black anger. And we keep getting blamed for that anger. We keep getting blamed for that anger and we keep getting stigmatised and, you know... Persecuted. Persecuted. We keep getting... We keep getting attacked mm. for that anger as well, whereas no one wants to question their fear and why they're scared of us. But they want to keep perpetrating this, this, this fear and this, you know, angry black person thing. And it's like, we have every right to be angry. There's something wrong with you if you're not angry. How can you sit here and listen to these lives being, being anything, being treated anything but what they are, is human lives? How can you sit there and listen to that and not react and not shake and not cry? How you can do that is because, you know, colonialism has kind of really done a, done a number on both of us, white people and black people. White people have now turned into psychopaths that do not bat an eyelid when they see a black person get run over by police or they see a young black man getting impaled on the fence after being chased and rammed by police. Every article that I've read this morning says stuff like he died after police pursuit. He was impaled. He impaled himself. How do you impale yourself on a fence? How can you shift the blame onto a boy? We have... How can you get rid of any 
evidence that he even lived or was there. It's erasure. I'm sorry, I'll keep going on. So Let's play our next thing. It's got, tactic, it's tactic. And again, you know, you fellas, listen, take a look around you because this not only applies here, it applies every black community because these fellas that get shipped off from Redfern after they've come here and learned how to cover their tracks so well, they get sent to other black communities. It's unacceptable. We've, we've now got to take some time to have a look at what it is as a community we need to focus on and push forward. We need to be able to have our own self-regulating and, and regulating but also just community conversations, continuing the conversation like we have planned around some of these topics. Mm. What programs can we influence and get involved in our community mm. to look forward to make sure that there are better there's more accountability and better treatment by the police. Mm. Coming out, we've got another segment from our um, first community um, forum mm. that we had on Tuesday at 107. Just would like to thank them again for reaching out and giving us the opportunity to use their space. It was a really great turnout. The community was there in full force and we got to have a really constructive conversation around some of these issues. We're now going to play what some elders in the community, as well as Lorna herself, um, think about what we need to go forward um, mm. given the state of affairs that we've just put out plain for you in regards to contact mm. but the ongoing history and relationship between colonisation, gentrification mm. and police. So the stuff that we're talking about we know works. Exactly. This is why we're talking about it, right? We're going to go straight into it. Do it. I mean, I think they've recently just enacted legislation, the police, where they can... Uh, they've made it legal to monitor these young people in the, the fashion that they do. But, you know, we've had 20, 30 years of Aboriginal people going into, I think, the academy down at Goulburn. I think it's a waste of time. They are, The racism is just too far embedded. Um, the only solution, as far as I'm concerned, it'll take a couple of generations to breed the racism out. I'd like to have the key to that zoo. They, there's this two words that are used, extreme terrorism in this country in these modern times, certain people from certain backgrounds stig stigmatised for those two words, extreme terrorism. This country is built on extreme terrorism and we still continue to experience extreme terrorism when it comes to our people being hypervigilant with police relationships. And that's what's happened in this country from day one. They don't own it, they never did, they never will. And it's all about possession, control and possession of land. And because we own it from one end to the other, north to south, it doesn't matter about their racist legislation called native title. Mm. That is not our deed and title. That's the white man's excuse for extinguishment of our title. Mm. We know our deed and title comes through our bloodlines, mm. through our feet that walk on the land every day. We know these people weren't around long enough to have the title and the tenure that we have in this place. And yet the arrogance and the racism that they came with said that they could lie to the world, they could kill us and massacre us and lie to the world about the history of this place and pretend they are virtuous people. They are not. They're the most barbaric people on the planet. I would never want to be white because of the barbarism they practice amongst themselves and then to everyone else. They treat their own children like filth. They have done historically for many, 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 many hundreds of centuries. 
and then they have the extreme arrogance and temerity to come here and say we treat our kids bad. They have a billion dollar child stealing industry based on that lie. I hope every police officer stationed over there at Redfern is listening to this and I hope, I really pray, pray that you learn from your mistakes and stop treating our people like animals. Well, um, I'd like to pose one last question and maybe this is actually directed more towards um, that institution because, you know, it is a colonial institution after all. Um, what sort of treatment do we receive when we call emergency services or police? Do we actually, you do know, we actually call? do we actually call police? Like, what do we do when things happen? We get the blame for it, like we're the bad ones. Well, it takes half an hour, an hour, two hours for an actual copper to come to your door. Mm. I've, I've had someone try to kick in my door when, like, a couple of weeks after I had my son. Um, and he was literally trying to flush us out with the hose. He said that he was looking for Muslims to kill. This was a white man in high-vis clothes, kicking down my door. The police, I had to call them like three times and they just dropped him to his next dealer's house. Should have should have been terror terrorist charges really. They dropped him to his dealer's house. So I guess that's you know that's that's I think a really good sort of point to leave it on. What what do we do? Can do we call the police? Why would you not call the police? And I think we've been you know talking about about it all. My friends and I don't trust them. Last time I called the police after getting attacked, I got locked up and held in Redfern Police Station for three hours. Also, a question of liaison officers, Aboriginal liaison officers. Go ahead. I don't know. I mean, like, uh, you know, we've had the most uh, uh, horrific things happen, situations, and what 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 does an Aboriginal police liaison do? What power do they have? What stand do they take? Are, are they just another little tokenistic little? Uh, front up there to, you know, make out that, you know, the police uh, cops are great as with, goes with the stickers they got on their cars. It's the ones that they send in for damage control. That's how yeah. they've been used. I, I guess they're selected, aren't they? They, 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 would, they would, wouldn't can have I, to be kind of decent and honest. Can I make a recommendation that I think we should put to the National Federal Parliament that every police officer has a body camera on them that can't be turned off? Yeah. Well, I thought that was a thing. I thought that was actually something that... No, they don't. Why, why should the police have to go up to high-rises when there's only two exits out of each, each side? There's two exits that you come out where the stairs are. So the coppers can be on each side. Why do they have to go upstairs? Because that's the, the fear tactics and that's, you know, yeah. what we've... This is, this is what they do. This is how they know to flush people out and scare people. Escalate it to crisis real quick. Yeah, they do. Um, like, they I lost my partner to the system there. since the age of what? Since I was pregnant. And now I've lost him to the actual police and the idiots that are sitting there condoning it. Like, Well, let's look at, you know, they, these are young men that are growing up here. They can't, they can't fulfil roles like being a father, creating safe space, because they actually don't know what a safe space feels like. And this is, you know, this is both folds, like with everybody growing up here. And this is why me, as someone that has been going to counselling for 15 years, 
is trying to get people to understand here. There's a lot of stuff we're still getting blamed for, but nobody wants to talk about. And I just wanted to throw my suggestions out there, you know. Things that worked when we were younger was knowing about our rights. Um, you know, yeah, the old legal service cards. They the, these kind of things. This is, this is the stuff that I want to suggest as a community and get community support for and get support wherever it is um, because it's needed, you know. A neighbourhood cop watch, blackfellas monitoring them. Yeah. That's what we need to be doing. We actually changed the Empress's <laughs> attitude. Remember the pub we all drank at when we were young and yeah, the yeah, susus yeah. pointed in the right direction? But, but, but that's where they did the yeah. training? No, but that's the where police? they did the training and everything. But the police, that, you know, we... The problem is that it doesn't matter how much training you give them. They, the inherent racism within them, white superiority, yeah. uh, white privilege, all of it comes before our lives. And then they're given a gun and, and, and cuffs. And learned how to shoot it, yeah. No, that's it. They go, and they go to training for so many weeks, months, however it works. Why can't they do a re-evaluation check on the state of mind that they're in with the First Nation people and if do it like once every twelve months. Yeah. yeah. No, and they should have. No, they should have. They should have psychological assessments so every twelve months. Psychologically assessed on how they, how they think about Aboriginal yeah. people. It's a really specific thing, yeah. which is a really good recommendation. Any tendencies to have any racism in it, send them to the white fellows. Let them deal with no, them. No, they shouldn't send be. Them if they're racist, they should not be in a uniform. Yeah. And don't have them in a black community that is like first you take away Redfern, so now we've only left with Waterloo. Like at least give us what and now look at all the changes that you're doing to Waterloo. At least let us have something that we remember as children mm. and that was my little safe spot. So so many truths there, so many things to take from that conversation and I just wanted to touch on it again is that you know the stuff that worked when we were younger the reason why I have lived my whole life in in amongst all of this and have still not had a record is 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 you know purely because I've been armed with how to deal with police in the first 10 minutes of interacting and this is how they kind of gather all this evidence evidence which is then used against you mm. um you know um knowing your rights, um, educating your children about these rights, finding them, exposing them to people that know um, how to talk to police. If you're, under, if you're under 18, you should not be talking to... The police should not be talking to you unless they have an adult present. This is, a, this is a simple thing that I see happening almost every day and why it's so important for us to monitor their interactions in this community. Let's 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 start taking evidence. Let's start jotting down and keeping a record of of every interaction, whether it is good or not. Because how often do we actually need the police and they actually come and help? You know, I spoke about the last time I called the police. I ended up being locked up when I was pregnant and had to go to court for a year to get those charges dropped after being attacked. I mean, it's just it's the prejudice, the racial bias that these that this community has. I mean, we need to it's 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 fucked. We have mm. to create our own policing system to police the police. Yeah, we do. We need to we need to hold them accountable, and it's also within our interest to do these things. So mm. I and think it's very important that we hit those points 
it's basic community building stuff though too. And this is stuff that, you know, the 10 Embassy mob did really, really well. Mm. They noticed that people had specific skill sets and then they encouraged them to pursue positions within the community and family structures and community structures. That that's your, that because you're good at that, that's your job. You know? Um, um, trauma training. Where 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 are the where are the counselors? Where are the counselling sessions right now for the Dungay family down there? In amongst all of these processes, there has still not been any community forums and any community counselling or healing. Still to this day, fifteen years after the fact, to then just come to another to another death here in this community from the from someone you know that was so community orientated, and I can't stress that enough. Um, how do we deal with this stuff? How do we deal with this trauma when we have to navigate with finding answers and inquests? How do we have that closure? Because, you know, in our traditional societies, young people just didn't just die. There were needed to be answers. You know, that's why, like, it was unheard of for young people to die. Like, usually, you know, they would go looking for the next mob and, and be... be thinking that something in another realm has hurt this person. Someone's cursed them. Because we literally don't have it in our traditional way of thinking that young people die. I mean, unlike... I mean, it's it's reflected in a lot of other conversations in other countries as well. It's, it's, it's the fact that, you know, not to sound boring and banal, but you have hope for the future. You need to invest into your youth and this kind of prejudicial behaviour and this ac- these activities, this treatment and stigmatisation of black youth I- instrumentally and, and, and over, an, over the, f- the expanse of this entire, you know, nation, I'm using quotation marks, when I say that is it shows us that there's no, there is no trust, there is no respect of that future, mm. there is no idea mm. of there being an Aboriginal future. Mm. I mean, in, this, mm. in the census taken in 2016, the median age of Indigenous Australians in the country was 23 years old. Mm. That's, that's, that's a lowered mark from the last, which, which mm. was putting it in the late 20s. Mm. There is an influx of young Indigenous people mm. in this country. The population is growing and this prejudicial behaviour is putting these children, putting these young individuals into, into mm. jeopardised, marginalised spaces, mm. vulnerable spaces, or, you know, the worst, incarcerated or dead. Well, they're and locking them up before even crimes exactly, are committed, right? Exactly, and it becomes a vicious cycle because, like we said, and like David Shoebridge said and like we've said this before, they're scared. People are scared of what could happen if there was, if there was an intelligent... And for and, and unified front across these issues, and we need ourselves to be able to understand that that's power that we have in this space, mm. and we need to help guard our communities mm. from these prejudicial and completely mm. um, unacceptable ha- behavior and mm. treatment of our. Well, so Angela Angela Davis talks about abolishing police, uh, ab- abolishing prisons. You know. Um, those things are in place specifically to break people. So why are there whole institutions that are built for children? We're, we're, this is a whole institution that's literally created to break children who are going to be uh, Aboriginal children in there. Um, so now we're going to lead to, um, I think we're going to close off for today's show. Um, we want to first of all 
thank our sponsors and thank the people who have been involved. Thank University of Sydney and the Community Broadcasting um, Federation for helping us make this happen, um, giving us this platform that we have then been able to share. And thank you to 107 Projects for mm-hmm. giving us an opportunity to just share mm-hmm. some space and have a community forum. There'll be more coming up soon. Keep your eyes peeled mm-hmm. on the Skid Row Facebook page. We'll be posting up dates for, the, for upcoming events and forums. We're going to be talking about... Um, maintenance issues in the public housing departments. We're going to be talking about the money money story about money. what's been going on in this community for the last 30 or so years. And we're going to be talking about reparations. Reparations, where it all needs to go to. And then we're wrapping up our series. We've only got a couple episodes left. I just wanted to remind everyone that there's a, there's a rally down there at Lee Street at the Corrective Service Office near Central um, show support for the family down there that are having to, you know, sit there and listen to these officers who have had their faces blurred out and they're anonymous and, you know, are protected, um, um, having to go through all the court case and the details of their family member um, murdered, literally. Um, you know, so go down there, show your support. Show your support when the TJ march happened. Know, know the tally. Know the deaths in custody tally. Have a look at all of these things. Um, I'll just read something I wrote in 2016, um, which I think is a good summary. You know, we know we have the answers to our problems. This is this is what it keeps coming down to. Our people have survived this stuff before and we will survive again. We live in a patriarchal society founded on colonialism where genocide has removed Aboriginal presence, culture, language, kinship and ceremony. In a lucky country, a democratic country, a country with a national anthem that still screams white Australian policy. In a country where we are told of all the things we wouldn't have if invasion never ever took place. If you are Aboriginal, you can be killed by the state. If you are Aboriginal, you can experience a poorer value of life. If you are Aboriginal, you will be discriminated against by the hour, every hour, on the hour. If you are Aboriginal, you will have to prove, you will have to prove who you are, where you come from, your bloodlines and position in that community to a white organisation for basic services, health and education and employment opportunities. If you are an Aboriginal woman, you are 45 times more likely to be a victim of domestic violence. According to societal consensus, according to societal consensus, if you are an Aboriginal child, you are 10 times more likely to be abused and neglected. And that's just not talking about stuff happening in the home. I have to stress that. If you are Aboriginal, you are 40 times more likely to be admitted to hospital because of assault and violence. If you are Aboriginal, you are six times more likely to commit suicide. These things did not exist in the country prior to invasion. This is not what a democratic country should look like. We invented democracy. Egalitarianism was practiced here for many thousands, if not many years, if not many millions of years. Aboriginal men and women both had roles to play. Melissa Lukashenko wrote that people in Australia had many millennia millennia to finest systems of political power sharing before ancient Greek people we still reference today came on the scene. We invented democracy. We had what Bruce Pascoe writes, a great Australian peace. This is evidenced in Captain Cook's journals when he described Australia's original inhabitants as the happiest people upon the face of this earth. 
in this day and age, we dream of an alternative reality that can still exist. What could have happened if Aboriginal women colonised this space instead of white men? We believe there would be no such thing as a starving child. There would be no such thing as a power struggle because she would honour her mothers, elders and men and children. Discussions would take place instead of wars. Sustainability would replace capitalism and greed. Aboriginal people die young, fill jails and hospitals and asylums every week in this country because of the incapacity of Australians to ask if there could be another better way. It would have been more beneficial for everyone to be assimilated into our way of living than to a foreign idea of democracy that favours white men and not Aboriginal women. It's artists like Teela Watson, who I am so lucky to have conversations with and inform my work that have been talking about Australia has a black future and it's female. Celebrate, celebrate your children, celebrate black kids, celebrate these next generations coming up. We never ever needed police in our societies because we had, si we had systems in place to address these issues and to call them out when they were happening and to find solutions as they were happening. If we are celebrating young Aboriginal children, we are giving them every tool they need to survive. And that's what it's all about. You've been listening to The Survival Guide. It's about that. It's about moving forward. It's about us being stronger every day because we are strong. Mm -hmm. We have so much power to keep us here and to push us forward. We have so much strength. Um, you heard it here on Radio Skid Row 88.9 FM. Um, you can check out the Facebook page on Skid Row or the Instagram and for any upcoming events. Thank you to Hannah for being such a great supporter, our producer um, here at Skid Row. And we're going to play this out. You heard it here on Radio Skid Row. Yeah.